for the Chester and Flintshire Talking Newspaper for the week ending the 2nd of March 2024. Do you believe in fairies? In 1917, the same year that children's poet Rose Fileman published her poem Fairies, two cousins, Elsie Wright, age 16, and Francis Griffiths, age 9, took some photographs of fairies in Cottingley Beck, which flowed behind Elsie's home in Cottingley in West Yorkshire. <coughs> the fairy photos intrigued those people who were inclined to believe in these supernatural beings. The most eminent believer in the fairies was Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who was made aware of them through his involvement in the Theosophical Society, to whom Elsie's mother had taken the photos. However, in the 1980s, Geoffrey Crawley, then the editor of the British Journal of Photography, undertook a major investigation and concluded they were fakes. In 1983, Elsie, by then an elderly lady, confessed that the photos were indeed fake, but her cousin Francis insisted all her life that the fifth and last photo, fairies in their sunbath, was real. Elsie's father, Arthur, was an amateur photographer with his own darkroom, and he had the equipment Elsie needed to develop the photographic plates. Elsie was also a keen amateur photographer, and she had experience in retouching photographs. Her father always suspected that the images were fake. The fairies were eventually discovered to be drawings copied from images in Princess Mary's gift book published in 1914, with wings added to them. They were then propped up and photographed by the girls. As the daylight hours are increasing, woodlands are coming to life. Hedgehogs are emerging from hibernation. Birds are beginning their nest building and spring flowers are emerging at last. The cowslip is a lovely early spring flower, believed to be so named because it is supposed to spring up where a patch of cow dung has fallen. The odour of a cowslip is said to calm the heart and in Kent they are known as fairy cups. Sunrise on Sunday the 3rd of March will be at 6.55am. Sunset will be at 17.56pm. Please note that the Talking Newspaper telephone contact number is changing. From the 1st of March, the telephone number to reach Chester and Flincher Talking Newspaper will be 07852-555-605 That is 07852-555-605 When you call this number you can leave a message giving your contact details and one of us will call you back. Thank you. Hello, Carrie's here reading some Flincher stories. Cluidian Range call for volunteers to help protect endangered curlews this season. 
an appeal has been launched to help connect curlews with much-needed protection this season. The Cluidian Range and Dee Valley Area of Outstanding Natural Beauty, AOMB, is taking part in the Curlew Connections Wales project, a Curlew Recovery Wales partnership project working with Banai Brecheniog, Brecon Beacons, and GWCT. It is under the All Wales Partnership Project, Gulvinir Cymru, that aims to help breeding curlew across the country. This work to protect the curlews across 12 areas in Wales is funded by Welsh Government through the Heritage Lottery Fund. The project covers the current AONB area, which includes large area of Denbyshire, Flintshire and Wrexham. To help get the right support and protection for the birds in the area, the project team is keen to work with community volunteers to monitor sights and sounds of curlews on the land. Local curlew and people officer Sam Kenyon explained. The curlew is under threat across the whole of the UK due to habitat loss, earlier forage cuts during nesting seasons and the impact of predation on the birds. What we will be doing shortly is monitoring and surveying this spring to get a good idea of where we need to target our efforts rurally. As it's such a big area to cover, we are looking for support from local community members to help us locate curlews through sightings and sounds of public access areas and also to take part in monitoring throughout the season. We would support anyone interested in volunteering to help these rare birds survive in the area and it's also a great opportunity for getting outdoors to help not just the curlew's well-being but your own as well. Councillor Barry Meller, lead member for Environment and Transport and Biodiversity Champion said, this is a very important project for the curlew that was once a popular site not just in Denbyshire and North Wales, but across the whole of the UK. I'm grateful that this project and funding allows the AONB to really push forward with protecting the curlews we have. And I would encourage those interested to volunteer to help the populations to survive and hopefully grow in the future. For further information on the project, or to report any sightings or hearings of curlews in the areas listed through using what three words, email samantha.kenyon at denbyshire.gov.uk That's samantha.kenyon at denbyshire.gov.uk Chester Government rejects bathing water designation for the River Dee. An application was made to designate part of the River Dee in Chester as a bathing water area, but it's been rejected by the government. The Clean Dee campaign saw Cheshire West and Chester Council working with local groups and other key stakeholders to submit an application to the Department for Food and Rural Affairs, DEVRA. The application for a designated bathing water at the popular bathing spot at Sandy Lane was not successful because it did not meet the new threshold of 100 bathers per day. 
The guidance for applications was changed to include new criteria in July 2023. Halfway through a consultation exercise with the residents, community and sports groups, visitors and businesses, who were asked to give their views on what the river means to them and how they use it. Although the user numbers did not reach the new threshold, the Council put forward several reasons to support the case for designation. The first step is to encourage better water quality and over time ensure this. The bathing water designation doesn't mean the water meets bathing water quality standards or even that the water is safe for bathers, but it can be the first step to ensure actions taken to improve water quality through requirements to test regularly and to identify the sources of pollution and to recommend improvement measures. Designating bathing water status refers to the designation of a beach or inland water as a bathing water so that information on water quality is provided to bathers and their health can be protected. Firstly, the purpose of the regulations is to protect public health and whilst the threshold was not reached during a very poor summer, there are nevertheless substantial numbers of bathers whose health should be protected. In addition, there are large bather numbers well above the published threshold in long-established sporting events whose health should also be protected. There's also some evidence that health concerns following recent adverse publicity about river pollution, both nationally and locally, are leading to a reduction in people using the river for bathing and for other sporting activities. The new guidance also excludes children paddling from being counted in the surveys, but the rationale for this is far from clear in the public health context, and children are viewed as important user groups. Improved water quality would of course benefit not only bathers, but also a wide range of other leisure and sports users including paddlers, paddleboarders, canoeists, rowers, leisure boat users and local businesses, as well as the environment and wildlife. Restoring the Daniel Adamson. 20 years ago this week, a group of volunteers met on a quayside in Ellesmere Port and decided to save the last tugboat built on the River Mersey. The then 101-year-old boat was a rusted husk and was just days away from being towed across the Mersey one final time for scrapping. Surveying the boat on February 22, 2004, the group found its interior once described as being more akin to that offered by liners of the period, according to National Historic Ships, had been damaged by fire, water, vandals and thieves. They resolved to save the Daniel Adamson. Built in 1903 at the Ralph Brocklebank, at the shipyard that would become Camel Laird, Tranmere, the tug took passengers between Ellesmere Port and Liverpool and towed long chains of barges loaded with goods from narrowboats from the Shropshire Union Canal. In 1936, she was sold to the Manchester Ship Canal, refitted with a luxurious Art Deco saloon for passengers, and operated as a tug, the company director's inspection vessel, and corporate hospitality venue, until she was retired in 1984. Two decades of neglect and vandalism 
left the Daniel Adamson in the sorry state she was in when tugboat master Dan Cross found her and formed the Daniel Adamson Preservation Society, purchasing the boat for just one pound. Eleven years of fundraising and painstaking restoration followed. In 2015, the Society had a second funding bid to the National Lottery approved and received £3.8 million to return the luxurious tugboat to her former glory. She was relaunched in 2016 and is now a common sight on Cheshire's waterways as she takes day trippers along the River Weaver and the Manchester Ship Canal. <clears throat> Andrea Ward, 60, became operations director for the ship in 2016 and has since overseen the tug's new life. She's the high maintenance woman in my life, she said, adding, she gets in your blood and we're all very protective and proud of her. Andrea said, when they found her in 2004, it was just days before she was due to be scrapped. She'd been vandalised, set on fire, and people had stolen practically anything of any value out of her. After years of neglect, she was in a very sorry state. She describes Dan Cross, still involved to this day, as the driving force behind the whole thing, and says what followed his one-pound purchase of the boat was Eleven years of blood, sweat and tears from volunteers. <clears throat> a lot of the actual maintenance to this day is still done by volunteers, she said. You can't keep them away. And what has saved her is that passion. It's the best job I've ever had. And that's because of the volunteers that I'm working with. Everybody is so passionate about her. I talk to her like she's a person when I go down there. Hello, cankerous old lady. Cantankerous old lady. What are you doing now? You're looking beautiful today. The Daniel Adamson, known affectionately as the Danny, now embarks on 35 to 40 cruises every year and hosts weddings, parties and corporate hospitality events when moored at Sutton Weaver, or the Royal Albert Dock. The boat can often be seen heading from Sutton Weaver Swing Bridge to the Anderton Boat Lift. But Andrea says the Danny still has her challenges and the Society has been struggling to attract new volunteers. She costs a lot of money to run. She'll never be able to earn enough to afford her upkeep just by cruising, so it's a constant search for ways to make enough income to keep her going for the future. Trying to get people to visit her is the hardest bit. Once they've been, everyone seems to fall in love with her. People are having to work longer and we need a continual influx of volunteers to learn the skills. There's no manual for this boat, you'll learn on the job. But people are having to work until they're so much older and they haven't got time to volunteer. We're always looking for volunteers. In the newest chapter of the old boat's life, the Danny is now taking sixth form students from a local area aboard as part of an initiative to get young people interested in the maritime industry. The project, 
Maritime Heritage Maritime Futures is backed by some of the biggest maritime firms and organisations in the region and teaches young people about the area's maritime history, as well as exposing them to jobs in the field, including jobs related to building new infrastructure in ports to prepare for a more environmentally friendly future. Andrea said she does so much more than just sailing around and looking pretty. She's actually a really good ambassador for intergenerational working. The volunteers enjoy so much working with younger people and vice versa. Flintshire Winners announced a £50,000 fund for North Wales Community Projects. The Flintshire winners of a special £50,000 fund to help communities across North Wales were announced at a recent event in Colwyn Bay. The initiative, called Your Community, Your Choice, helps support grassroots projects in the region and is supposed supported by the North Wales Police and Community Trust, PACT, the North Wales Police and Crime Commissioner and North Wales Police. Over the 11 years since Your Community, Your Choice started, almost £600,000 has been awarded to nearly 200 projects working to reduce crime in their neighbourhoods and also to support the priorities in the Police and Crime Commissioner's Police and Crime Plan. The funding for Your Community, Your Choice comes partly from money seized by the courts through the proceeds of Crime Act, with the rest coming from the Police and Crime Commissioner. The successful Flintshire groups and projects announced this year comprise Aura Wales Shot and Boxing Club, Shot and Boxing Club and Community Hubs, the Rockworks Academy, Breaking Barriers Project, and Buckley Cricket Club, creating a lighter, brighter and safer environment for all at Buckley Cricket Club. The winners of the local projects that received funding were delighted with their success as part of this scheme. Josh McEwen, School and Community Supports Coordinator, Aura Wales said, we are delighted to be awarded the grant through the Your Community, Your Choice Fund. It will help us support young people in Flintshire, providing opportunities to participate in various activities in a fun, engaging and safe environment, while also helping to tackle any current issues young people may be facing or are at risk of being involved in. Tanya Jones, director at the Rockworks Academy, commented, The Rockworks Academy are absolutely delighted to be receiving this funding, which will enable us to run sessions where musicians can come to for free. They have dry, accessible, supervised and guided sessions with equipment provided so that all barriers to their participation in musical activities can be broken down. We offer sessions disengaged teens with autism, ADHD and CP who have to conform to education systems that do not support them fully, giving them a voice and learning how to express themselves and develop communication skills so that they can better self-advocate. Playing music in groups or bands improves listening skills and encourages better problem-solving skills. Sessions are also given to vulnerable people and their carers 
and those with disabilities, enabling them to participate and experience performing both privately and at shows. We are very excited to be able to put this into effect. Thank you so much. Buckley Cricket Club added, All at Buckley Cricket Club are delighted to have received the Your Community, Your Choice grant. It will enable us to install security lighting around the cricket club. With a big influx of new members, primarily women, girls and children, it is ever important for our players to feel safe and secure. We want to say a huge thank you for giving us this opportunity and with this support it helps us get closer to our aspiration of being the most open, accessible, safe and inclusive cricket club in North Wales. <coughs> North Wales Police and Crime Commissioner Andy Dunbobbin said, I am very happy to see the breadth and variety of organisations in this year's Your Community, Your Choice Fund. The whole of North Wales is represented, from Anglesey to Wrexham. Organisations, including those that work with the young, with older people, as well as sports, arts and health and wellbeing groups. Supporting communities is a key part of my plan for policing and tackling crime in the region and our communities in North Wales are resilient and caring places. Organisations like those that have received funding are the backbone of these neighbourhoods. They step in and step up day after day to help and support their communities and I cannot thank them enough for their work. PACT Chairman Ashley Rogers commented, Your community, your choice is all about helping communities and empowering organisations and individuals to make a difference for local residents. We are all richer for their work. The funding for this initiative is made even more special by the fact that it comes partly from money seized from criminals, meaning that it is paid back to the people. I'm very pleased that we've been able to help so many worthwhile projects this year and hope that the funding awarded continues to make a difference for a long time to come. North Wales Police Assistant Chief Constable Chris Alsop added, On behalf of North Wales Police, I'm delighted to see the Your Community, Your Choice initiative awarding even more worthwhile projects from across the region. Many of these projects undertake valuable outreach work in their communities and they help to reduce instances of antisocial behaviour and other negative activity by providing positive diversionary activities and interventions for both young people and adults alike. I wish them all every success in their work. A senior prison officer's job is up in the air after he was found guilty of using unlawful force against a defenceless inmate in his cell. Joshua Francis of Athena Grove in Chester appeared at Wrexham Magistrates Court on Wednesday and Thursday for trial. The 32-year-old had previously denied one offence of assault by beating, which was alleged to have happened at HMP Berwyn during his duty as a custodial manager. Prosecutor Helen Sidhu told the court the victim, Jake Burns, was a prisoner on the day of the incident, May the 9th, 2023, and that the defendant had used force which was not reasonable in the course of his duties. She told the court Francis had punched the victim's head and face after he had been restrained face down on a bed 
leaving him with a bleeding nose, bruising and swelling on it to his face. Francis, along with other officers, bought food in polystyrene containers for Mr Burns and his soulmate on the day. The victim threw the food he thought he told the court in evidence, with it landing on the floor and all over the cell. What followed, the victim explained, was a series of punches to his head and face by the defendant after he'd been handcuffed behind his back. It was so quick, he said, I was defenceless. I know he's popped, there was blood coming out of it. Francis, under questioning by his defending solicitor Catherine Hyam, told the court the situation went from 0 to 100, and that immediately after being disorientated by the food being thrown in his face, he had no ability to restrain Mr Burns in the standard way. In that moment, he said it was completely personal protection. The defendant said the required ratio to safely restrain prisoners was three staff to one inmate, one to control the head and one on each arm. But between Mr Burns and his cellmate, who both required restraining, there were only four officers, including Francis. He said, I'm in a cell with two officers being restrained and staffed. I'm doing whatever I can to defend myself and to gain some control of the situation. And as the officers struggled to gain control, the landing was busy with other inmates who were out of their cells. Only when a prisoner decided to press the general alarm did several more officers come running from other units to assist, he told the court. All of our resources, which we don't have enough of, ended up tied in that cell, Francis said. There were still prisoners out on the landing and no one to lock them up. They could potentially have got involved in that situation. For a prisoner to press the general alarm, they obviously deemed that to be a serious situation. Cross-examining Francis, Prosecutor Helen Sidhu said, I put it to you that the time where you struck Jake twice on the bed, and then again when he stood up and is controlled, those extra bows were unnecessary. The defendant answered, I'd been assaulted, stunned and confused, and was at the back of the cell. I thought my actions were reasonable, necessary and proportionate at that moment. But at the conclusion of the trial on Friday morning, District Judge Gwyn Jones found the defendant guilty of common assault. He found the officer's actions had been lawful up to a point, but what followed when Mr Burns had been constrained in cuffs wasn't lawful. It had been excessive self-defence, the judge found. Ms Hyam, in mitigation, told the court he had just been assaulted and this was a completely new situation for him. He had to rely on instinct to defend himself. He's currently still employed by the prison service, but is suspended on basic pay. It is unclear at this stage what will happen to that employment. The prison will have its own internal measures, so it is up in the air. This comes after eight years of service in the prison service and five years in the armed forces. He isn't someone who displays any kind of inherent criminality. The court handed down a £2,000 fine for the crime, as well as ordering Francis to pay £775 in costs and a £500 contribution towards compensating. TNF Soundings Features from across the UK Hello, this is Tanya with an article written by Fiona called Helping Hands for People with Visual Impairment. 
Visually impaired runner Kelly Barton from Southport hit the headlines recently when she married the man who has been her running guide for seven years. Kelly had never been running until 2016 as she believed her visual impairment would make it too difficult and inaccessible. However, she decided to try a park run event and Mike Leatherbarrow joined her as a guide. Mike had been a volunteer at the London 2012 Paralympics and was inspired to become a running guide for visually impaired people. He'd been taking part in a weekend run at Stockport's Hesketh Park when he met Kelly. After seven years of park runs, half marathons and even the London Marathon, the pair were married. We just fell in love over the miles, said Kelly, speaking to the BBC in Liverpool. Kelly and Mike's story is inspiring, not only for romantics, but it shows how reaching out to people with visual impairment can increase their independence in many aspects of their lives. Meanwhile, further north in Dundee, a charity worker who helps the blind and partially sighted regain their independence explains how she has become a professional problem solver for the people she supports. Laura Ramsey, a rehabilitation worker with North East Sensory Services in Dundee, helps people with visual impairments to learn daily tasks like cooking, cleaning, using technology, outdoor travel and visiting shops. In an interview with Third Force News, a daily news outlet for charities and voluntary organisations in Scotland, the mum of three from Carnoustie highlights the importance of taking time to listen to her service users and understand their needs. She helps build their confidence by mapping out routes outside their homes, crossing roads, taking care of themselves and identifying and overcoming dangers and risks. Laura said when someone is newly diagnosed or they have sight loss that's deteriorating, the first thing I'll do is carry out an assessment. We then make a plan, looking at the orientation and mobility side of things. How they are when they are out and about, are they able to see or hear traffic, do they see curbs, colours, identify landmarks? I'll also look at their independent living skills. That includes things like how they are in the kitchen. Are they safe to make a cup of tea or put on the oven? Can they see the buttons on the microwave or the washing machine? Are they safe to chop and prepare food? Do they enjoy reading or do they have hobbies that they want to continue with? Every single person is different and you must go in with an open mind and just listen to them. At the end of the day, it's their life, it's their home, and it's about how they want to live it. Elsewhere, many large organisations are learning that educating staff about visual impairments can improve the experience for visitors, customers and staff alike. For example, staff at Whipsnade Zoo are receiving sighted guide training as part of a new partnership with sight loss charity Guide Dogs. During the training, the zoo team were introduced to common eye conditions and how these may affect someone's ability to get about. They were then given practical training on how to safely and confidently guide someone while navigating obstacles such as stairs, doors and seating. However, assistance dogs are not currently permitted at Whipsnade Zoo because it has free-roaming animals such as Mara, Wallabies and Chinese water deer living on its 600 acres. 
These initiatives aren't exclusive to the UK. In Mumbai, railway staff are getting what they describe as an eye-opening experience to understand visual impairment too. The Mumbai News website reported that teams of railway staff were blindfolded and guided to enable them to better empathise with the experiences of passengers with visual impairments. Trainees included railway protection force constables, ticket checkers and all frontline employees who represent the face of the railways and interact with commuters daily. The exercises were conducted to help staff understand the challenges visually impaired individuals encounter while travelling on Mumbai's local trains and navigating railway stations. Coming back closer to home again, if digital technology is your bag and you wish to explore your environment independently, then a digital guide may be just the thing for you. With a digital guide, as a visually impaired person, you can explore new areas that you're unfamiliar with. Microsoft's iPhone app, Soundscape and Google Maps are examples of navigation apps which use audio to describe the environment. Some guides are available as a headset, others are smart glasses that also use a camera and connectivity to bring assistance to people with a visual impairment. It seems the sky's the limit if you're looking for a helping hand. TNF Soundings Seaside groups benefit from Anwil Homes' £5,000 fund. Anwil Homes has announced the distribution of a £5,000 fund among eight Deeside community projects through its Love from Anwil scheme. The initiative is, is part of Anwil's commitment to the redevelopment of the former RAF Sealand site, now known as the Airfields near their Summers Bridge development. Anwil has distributed funds to support the Special Ears Fund, which provides community activities and support for deaf children, <coughs> Groundwork North Wales, to cover the cost of food vouchers, the Stories of Shotton Works Community Project, an arts project around the area's industrial heritage, Shotton Boxing Club, to cover new equipment, Home Start Flintship to cover stay and play sessions for families, Art and Soul Tribe CIC to support men's mental health club sessions, Aura Wales to provide orienteering at Wepper Park and Sandycroft CP School to purchase new musical instruments. One of the projects to receive funding was the Stories of Shotton Works Community Project a performance art installation designed to share stories around steelmaking in Shotton and the industrial history of the area. Kate Roberts, creative arts practitioner, said we're so grateful to Anwil for this donation and support. This area has such a rich industrial heritage and it's important to preserve that and create a legacy for current and future generations. This funding will go a long way towards developing the project and sharing more stories about steelmaking at Shotton. Anwil's development has been named Summers Bridge in recognition of John Summers and Sons, the founders of Shotton Steelworks, who helped to bring industry and prosperity to the area from the late 19th century. 
The Summers family also built almost 300 homes in nearby Garden City to house workers in the 1920s. Amy Lloyd, Regional Marketing Executive, explained, Anwil is a thoughtful home builder and we recognise that we have a part to play in shaping the future of the communities we're building in. As our way of giving back, we've gifted £5,000 to eight very worthy courses and projects in the Deeside area. While this community has an exciting future, it was great to attend the Stories of Shotton Works Community Projects, recent performance art installation, and celebrate its past. We're so pleased to have been able to support the project, which is bringing the stories of making and coating steel at Shotton to life. Love from Anwell is a voluntary scheme attached to the 183 homes Anwell is building at Summers Bridge and the fund is now closed to new applicants. Wirral Fishmonger featured in Hairy Bikers episodes. A new series featuring the Hairy Bikers is airing on Tuesdays and sees the pair visiting a Wirral Fishmonger in one of the episodes. The seven-part series is The Hairy Bikers Go West on BBC Two and also available on iPlayer. It sees the boys reunite to travel down the west coast of the UK. Each week, Dave and Sai base themselves in stunning locations whilst exploring the changing areas through restaurants, recipes and inventive nude food entrepreneurs. The episodes, which started on February the 6th, saw the journey begin on the west coast of Scotland and journey through Lancashire. The pair continued to Merseyside, North Wales, Bristol and finally Devon and Dorset. Along the way, they discover a host of inspiring local producers doing their bit to celebrate the area's rich diversity, learn about the future of food production and track down a new generation of young farmers driven by sustainability. Dave Myers and Cy King's stop on this epic 600-mile trip covers 10 glorious counties, including Merseyside, where they did indeed meet the very special Wirral Fishmonger. Hello once again, this is Michael Jones at uh, Chester Talking Newspapers. Alton Park in Cheshire has a background which includes a long history of contentious and unpredictable events, some of which were as controversial and eventful as the sport of motor racing itself. Born in the flames of the 1926 fire in which the estate manor was burnt to the ground, the site was used as a military base in World War II, and in 1953 opened as Alton Park Motor Racing Circuit. From the 50s onwards, the racetrack was developed into a series of circuits designed to test the drivers to the limit. Each course was different. For example, the original course was 1.5 miles long, whereas the island circuit of the 70s was 2.3 miles long the International Circuit 2.7 miles long and the Foster Circuit 1.6 miles long. In the early days, the Cheshire and Wirral motor clubs raced each other around the track. But as Alton Park built its reputation and became established as a venue, the more important championships came to the northwest. 
including Formula 2, Formula 3, and of course, the superbikes. The track itself is characterised by a number of features, such as Cascades Corner and the Hislops Chicane. The high point in the road circuit is known as Hilltop, and this leads down towards Druid's Corner, Warwick Bridge and the Deer Leap. The longest straight on the course is appropriately named the Avenue, leading into Lakeside, the Island Bend, and then the tightest hairpin bend on the course, known as Shallow's Corner. Despite its provincial origins, Alton Park rose from the ashes to become an international success, hosting Formulas 1, 2 and 3, Formula 5000, the British Touring Car Championships, British Superbike Championships, and many others. The list of drivers who raced here reads like a roll call of British motor racing. In 1956, and for the next few years, Sterling Moss was the winner of the International Gold Cup. The following decade, Jim Clark and Jack Brabham were the first past the chequered flag at the same location. In the late 60s and 70s, John Surtees and a young Jackie Stewart raced here and won in front of crowds of up to 40,000 people. Perhaps the heyday for Alton Park was the 1972 Formula 2 race on the international circuit. In this extraordinary year, the drivers included Ronnie Peterson, Nicky Lauder, James Hunt and John Watson. At the zenith of its time as a motor racing circuit, Alton rivaled Brands Hatch and Snetterton as a venue, attracting international names and large crowds of spectators. Sponsors were there too, drawn in by all the success and the media attention. The RAC Tourist Trophy was staged here. The Daily Dispatch sponsored the Gold Cup. The Ferraris raced alongside the Maseratis, and the British fought back with McLaren, Lotus and Jaguar. Today, the racetrack is privately owned by Motorsport Vision and is still the venue for the British GT Championship and Touring Car Championships, as well as the British Superbike Championships, all of which have a following from all over the country. Throughout the classic era of motor racing, the 50s, 60s and 70s, Alton Park gave a platform to drivers, manufacturers and sponsors unrivaled anywhere in the north of England, and to this day remains one of the most important locations in the sport. Buckley family lacing up their running shoes. A Buckley family and their friends are lacing up their running shoes to raise vital funds for a local children's hospice charity. On the 10th of March, Nicole and Dan Saunders will be joined by old school friends to take on the MBNA Chester 10K for Hope House Teagobaith, a cause very close to their hearts. Nicole and Dan's son, Oliver, was born prematurely at 30 weeks and lives with an extremely rare genetic condition, DYRK1A syndrome, and he's also blind. Oliver attends both Teagobaith in the Conway Valley for respite stays and Hope House in Oswestry 
for hydrotherapy sessions in their pool, something the Saunders family are very grateful for. Nicole said, Oliver loves it at the hospices and the staff are all getting to know his little ways. It really helps us as a family with things like life events and gives us a chance to recharge a little bit. We can also do things with our daughter, Nancy, that we may logistically not be able to do with Oliver in his wheelchair. The hospice stays help us balance things out as a working family. Oliver will soon turn five and will be visiting Hope House's swimming pool with his family to celebrate together doing something he really enjoys and benefits from. Wanting to give something back to the charity, Nicole mentioned the idea of doing a fundraising run to Dan. It turned out that Darren Wilcock, a friend of Dan's, had already signed up for the Chester 10K to raise money for the hospices, and that's what sparked it. There will be a group of eight of us all running together, old school friends and their partners, said Nicole. Nicole and Dan will be joined by Darren Wilcock, Rachel Turner, Robbie Davis, Steph Bradfield, Kate Tilston and Scott Davis. They will be cheered over the line by both Oliver and Nancy with grandparents and have been getting fitter to boost their efforts. I have a walking treadmill in the house and have joined a gym. The boys have done some evening runs outside in preparation. I think it'll be tough, a mixture of running and walking, it feels good to give something back and say a big thank you for everything they've done for us and hundreds of other families. If you would like to sponsor Nicole and Dan in their efforts, then you can do so at justgiving.com, Darren Wilcock, Fundraising for Hope House and T. Gobbeith. Cheshire Police on Sentencing of Sex Offender Ryan Beaumont Police have shared details of their investigation into a sexual offender from Hartford living at Homewood Crescent. Ryan Beaumont was sentenced to three years in prison at Chester Crown Court on February the 23rd. It comes after the 38-year-old admitted a string of 21 offences, including upskirting voyeurism and taking and possessing indecent images of children. Following the sentencing, DC Victoria Hazelwood said Beaumont's behaviour was an extreme and distressing example of invading people's privacy, not only filming up skirts, but even hiding cameras in his own home in an attempt to capture indecent footage of his guests. Beaumont, though his offending was going unnoticed, was one of his victims, became suspicious of his behaviour whilst he was working as a mechanic and reported it to the police. When we examined his electronic devices, we discovered various videos and thanks to the strength of this evidence, he was left with no choice but to admit his offending. I hope this sentence handed to Beaumont today will provide some reassurance to his victims who have shown immense bravery throughout this investigation. Beaumont's offences were first brought to Cheshire Police attention in June 2021 after he was reported of upskirting a woman whilst working as a mobile mechanic. He was arrested and his electronic device seized, revealing hundreds of videos and photographs of both his victims and others found online. In a police interview, Beaumont admitted to hiding cameras in the spare room and in a sponge in the bathroom of his former home in Deeside to capture people getting changed and using the toilet. 
He told officers he got an adrenaline rush from obtaining footage without the victim's knowledge and would keep his phone on record at all times and film whenever he saw an opportunity. In total, he was charged with seven counts of taking indecent images of children, two counts of possessing images of children, eight counts of voyeurism and four counts of upskirting. On top of his custodial sentence, of which he will only have to serve half before being released on licence, Beaumont is subject to an indefinite sexual harm prevention order and will be on the sex offenders register for life. He's also banned from working with children and banned from owning a mobile phone with a camera. Sentencing Judge Simon Berkson called Beaumont's offending an appalling breach of trust. He added, this has been a long and painstaking investigation by the officers. She had to identify victims and notify them that they were themselves or their children have been victims of sexual offences committed by you, Mr Beaumont. No person should blame themselves for your offending. It can only be hoped that the victims get on with their lives. Prison is the only appropriate sentence. Stalkers in Cheshire will be required to wear a GPS tag as part of a stalking protection order, the first of its kind in the country. Cheshire Constabulary's Harm Reduction Unit benefited from over £1 million in extra funding, which was used to invest in the GPS tags and provide an enhanced service to those experiencing stalking. The tag alerts the police if the offender goes within a certain distance of the victim. Police and Crime Commissioner John Dwyer said, I want to congratulate the officers on their fantastic work in securing this SPO. The added value of having the GPS tags is that these will provide the victim with the reassurance that measures are in place to safeguard them against the perpetrator. This is the first SPO in the county that has the GPS tag stipulations, but it won't be the last. I look forward to seeing the technology used more and more to tackle this type of offending. PC Samantha Sonner of Cheshire Constabulary's Harm Reduction Unit said working as part of the Harm Reduction Unit I have seen firsthand the difference that stalking protection orders have made on victims lives by making them feel safer and making perpetrators accountable for any further offending behaviour. Having utilised Having the opportunity to utilise GPS tags for the purpose of SPOs is real progress. In this case, I know that GPS tags stipulated as a condition has made a huge difference to the victim who is relieved and who now feels safe at home and in the community for the first time since this ordeal started. Cheshire Constabulary deals with 3,000 stalking offences per year and the HRU is a collaboration between police, health 
probation and victim advocacy partners. It is responsible for protecting victims of stalking, bringing offenders to justice. It's vitally important to report every incident of stalking, no matter how small, to enable the police to build intelligence. You can report non-emergency incidents via 101 or online at www.cheshirepolice.uk RO report. If you are in immediate danger, always call 999. TNF Soundings Features from across the UK Hello, it's Tina here. I have your crossword for you. It is on a grid of 5 by 5 with just 6 words. 3 across and 3 down. Each word has 5 letters. We'll start with the across clues. One across, that's along the top. A Muslim household part for women. Four across, a yellow fruit. And along the bottom, to go in. The down clues, one down on the left hand side, divide in two, two down through the middle, send money in payment, Three down on the right-hand side, type of musical scale. We'll give you the answers a little later. TNS Soundings Small talk saves lives. Samaritans launch campaign as many admit to dodging conversations. New findings released by Samaritans reveal around half of adults in Wales avoid engaging with someone they don't know to avoid small talk, whilst around one in five are worried they would say the wrong thing when engaging with someone. But suicide prevention charity Samaritans say we are all better at small talk than we think and we know small talk can save lives. Although 94% of people say they don't have a go-to question to start small talk, 75% have used small talk in their personal lives over the past month, <clears throat> and over half, 58%, often or always use small talk in their professional lives too. A new campaign delivered in partnership with Network Rail, British Transport Police and the wider rail industry called Small Talk Saves Lives, empowers the public to trust their instincts and start a conversation if they think someone needs help in railway stations and other public settings. Samaritans Cymru said the campaign reassures the public that a little small talk like, do you know where I can grab a cuppa? can be all it takes to interrupt someone's suicidal thoughts and could help set them on the journey to recovery. <clears throat> People might worry that they will say the wrong thing, but saying something is better than saying nothing. With one in three, 31%, 
confessing to not knowing what to say to initiate conversation through small talk. The charity is calling on people across Wales to give it a go, as a simple comment about the weather could be all it takes to save someone's life. Bessie knows how powerful small talk can be. Whilst working as a train guard, she spotted someone in need of help. She said, just that one little bit of positive small talk can go so far. They caught my eye because it was a lot of flitting around, looking around, looking at their phone. Deep down, you've got all that adrenaline going and you're thinking, what should I say? I had found something about what they were wearing and it was a case of just going over and saying, oh my goodness, I absolutely love what you're wearing. Where have you got that from? It was just a short, sharp answer of, I don't know. That's when you can kind of edge your way into it to say, are you okay? Just that one little bit of positive small talk and it can go so far. It was a positive outcome. Take that chance because it is the most important and pivotal thing you could do. Neil Ingham, Executive Director for Wales said, as revealed in our latest findings, it's concerning to learn that nearly half of adults in Wales shy away from engaging with strangers to avoid small talk, with a significant position worried about saying the wrong thing. However, Small Talk Saves Live campaign underscores the importance of these seemingly trivial conversations. We firmly believe that small talk has the potential to be a powerful tool in suicide prevention. By encouraging simple interactions and equipping individuals with the confidence to engage, we can foster supportive communities where everyone feels valued and understood. Together, let's harness the underestimated power of small talk to make a difference in the lives of those around us. Andrew Haynes, Network Rail Chief Executive said, the Small Talk Saves Lives campaign has shown us how we each have the skills to genuinely help someone in distress. I am so proud of our relationship with Samaritans and British Transport Police and hope this next stage of the campaign continues to help educate and inform people that small talk can be life-saving. British Transport Police Assistant Chief Constable Paul Fernell said, we remain committed to protecting vulnerable people across the network. Our experience tells us that engaging in conversation at the right time can make all the difference. This campaign continues to encourage us all to try a little small talk. But if you don't feel comfortable or safe to intervene, tell a member of rail staff or a police officer. You can text British Transport Police on 61016 or call 999. For more information and tips, visit samaritans.org forward slash small talk saves lives or join the conversation on social media using hashtag small talk saves lives. New German themed axe throwing venue planned for Chester. A German-themed axe-throwing venue is planning to open its doors in Chester. Axe House Limited has submitted a licensing application to Cheshire West and Chester Council for the new venue, which would be located in the renovated Railway Arches section of Kitchen Street, the other side of the railway bridge from Chester Racecourse. 
The company, set up by experienced Chester hospitality sector worker Natasha Scovel and Andrew Benyon, says in the application description, the venue will be a German-themed axe-throwing venue offering a limited food menu and a selection of alcoholic and non-alcoholic drinks. Axe-throwing is an activity growing in popularity and sees competitors take part in groups, throwing in an axe at a target with the aim of hitting a bullseye. Axes used are typically similar to a Native American tomahawk. Maximum opening hours proposed by the venue are at 10am till 11pm on Mondays to Fridays, 9am to 11pm on Saturdays and 9am till 1pm on Sundays. Recorded music would be played at the venue at the manager's discretion and mainly at background level. Now we have the Vision Support Community Information Service dates for March 2024. The first dates are in Cheshire, the second set of dates are in North Wales. So on Tuesday the 5th of March, the mobile unit will be at the Gordale Garden Centre between 10am and 2pm. Thursday the 7th of March at Ellesmere Port Market Car Park between 10am and 2pm. On Tuesday the 12th, at Brook Street, Neston, near Sainsbury's, between 10am and 3pm. Then on Wednesday the 13th of March in the morning, at Kingswood, Kingsway, between 10am and 12pm. And then in the afternoon, at Blaken Library, between 1pm and 3pm. Then on Tuesday the 26th in the morning, at Waverton Shops, near The Chemist, between 10am and 12 and then in the afternoon at the Barber Institute, Tatton Hall, between 12pm and 3pm. And now the North Wales dates. On Monday the 18th, they'll be at the Llandidno Prom by the Cenotaph, between 10am and 2.30pm. Wednesday the 20th of March, at Mould Rugby Club, in the car park, between 10.30am and 2.30pm. On Friday the 22nd, they'll be at the Outpatients Department at Llandidno Hospital, between 10am and 2.30pm. At Tuesday the 26th, at Place Ir Wen, at Hollywell, between 10.30am and 2.30pm. Wednesday the 27th, they will be at the Asda Queen's Ferry, in the foyer, between 10.30am and 2.30pm. And finally, Thursday the 28th of March, they will be at Colwyn Bay Library. Now they do say that although they always try to keep to their advertised schedule, it can be subject to last minute changes. So to avoid disappointment, it's advisable to telephone 01244 381 515 between Monday to Friday, 9am to 4pm. So that's 01244 381-515, Monday to Friday, 9am to 4pm. Mould Bookshop, shortlisted for Top Retailer Award. The Flintshire Bookshop is in the running for an award celebrating independent retailers. The Mould Bookshop is one of 77 independent bookshops listed across nine different regions and countries in the British Book Awards 2024 Independent Bookshop, Bookshop of the Year Award, sponsored by book wholesaler Gardeners.
the awards celebrate stores at the centre of local communities, bringing passion and knowledge to the shop floor. Caroline Johnson from the Mould Bookshop said, We are over the moon to be a regional finalist for the Independent Bookshop of the Year Award. Our continued success is due to, to the strong support we get from our loyal local community. I am also grateful to my colleagues for their unwavering support over the last 12 months. Caroline has been a part of the mould business for more than four decades. She said, my book selling career started in a city bookshop where I also met my husband. I moved to mould in 1981 to become the manager of the bookshop. Six years later, my husband and I were able to buy the business. A few years ago, my husband retired and an old school friend joined us and she now helps me to run the business. We've been trading in Mould High Street for over 40 years. A generation of readers has grown up with us and we love to see how many of our customers who visit us as children are now bringing their own children to the bookshop. <coughs> Being part of the local community is very important to us and we now regard many of our customers as friends who will quite often call in to share their news. Tom Tivnan, the bookseller managing editor said, one of the things that is driven home by the selection process for this award is how lucky book buyers in the UK and Ireland are, as we are truly in an independent bookshop renaissance. This year's cohort is one of the strongest I have seen in my 15 years judging this award. Independents have come out of the pandemic and into a cost of living and business rates crisis, yet still through innovation and creativity, they thrive as never before. They are linchpins for our high street, bringing jobs, footfall and communities together. You can't really pin these independents down as they encompass general booksellers and those who sell into niches or new shops which have bravely opened in the shadow of the pandemic to businesses that have literally been trading for centuries. But if there is a through line, it is that their collective knowledge and passion shine through and prove once again how much better shop floor expertise is than an algorithm. The regional and country winners of the Independent Bookshop of the Year Award will be announced on Tuesday, March the 12th, whilst the overall winner will be revealed during the British Book Awards Ceremony at Grosvenor House, London on Monday, May the 13th. Cheshire family jailed for dealing Class A drugs in town. A mum and her two children have been jailed for their family drugs business which saw cocaine peddled across a town in Cheshire. Angela Sparrow would drive her daughter Terry Renwick to drug drops across Warrington and would also pass any new inquiries from drug users on to her son Robert Renwick. Between February 2023 and July 2023, Sparrow and her son also sent more than 1,400 bulk text messages, known as flare messages, to drug dealers advertising the sale of cocaine. The mum and son appeared before Liverpool Crown Court on Friday to learn their fate after Ms Renwick was jailed previously. In the past, Ms Renwick has served time behind bars for selling crack cocaine to pay for her honeymoon. Prosecuting Henry Riding said the defendant's offending came to light 
following a proactive and covert police investigation into the street dealing of Class A drugs in Warrington. Mr Riding said that the duo's offending took place between February 2023 and July 2023 and that during this period 1,493 messages, flare messages, were sent between them. They advertised quality Class A drugs and Renwick even offered the substances on credit. Upon Renwick's arrest, which was carried out on the same day as his mother's, he was found to be in possession of 21.8 grams of cocaine, which if dealt in one gram deals would be worth around £2,000. Liverpool Crown Court heard how Sparrow 58 was convicted of being concerning in the supply of cocaine following a trial, but continues to deny her offending. Whilst Renwick pleaded guilty to being concerned in the supply of cocaine and possession with the intent to supply cocaine. Both defendants have previous convictions. Defending his client, Michael Skoll said how Sparrow has a long history of drug addiction and mental health issues. He said how Sparrow played a lesser role in the dealing compared to her daughter, who was a powerful character. Defending Renwick, Zara Barqui said her client is deeply ashamed for his offending and that he became involved in the drug dealing due to drug debt he inherited through his sister's partner who fled. Sparrow was handed two years and eight months in prison, whilst Renwick was handed three years. A poem by Hilaire Belloc Matilda, who told lies and was burned to death. Matilda told such dreadful lies it made one gasp and stretch one's eyes. Her aunt, who from her earliest youth had kept a strict regard for truth, attempted to believe Matilda. The effort very nearly killed her, and would have done so had not she discovered this infirmity. For once, towards the close of day, Matilda, growing tired of play and finding she was left alone, went tiptoe to the telephone and summoned the immediate aid of London's noble fire brigade. Within an hour, the gallant band were pouring in on every hand, from Putney, Hackney Downs and Bow. With courage high and hearts aglow, they galloped, roaring through the town. Matilda's house is burning down! Inspired by British cheers and loud, proceeding from the frenzied crowd, they ran their ladders through a score of windows on the ballroom floor, and took peculiar pains to souse the pictures up and down the house, until Matilda's aunt succeeded in showing them they were not needed, and even then she had to pay to get the men to go away. It happened that a few weeks later her aunt was off to the theatre to see that interesting play, The Second Mrs. Tanqueray. She had refused to take her niece to hear this entertaining piece, a deprivation just and wise to punish her for telling lies. That night a fire did break out 
You should have heard Matilda shout. You should have heard her scream and bawl, and throw the window up and call to people passing in the street, the rapidly increasing heat encouraging her to obtain their confidence, but all in vain, for every time she shouted, Fire! They only answered, Little liar! And therefore, when her aunt returned, Matilda and her house were burned. TNF Soundings Features from across the UK Hello everyone, this is 10 Today, a 10-minute set of exercises to do at home to help keep yourself active. Before we get to today's presenter, a couple of housekeeping points to note. The 10 Today project is funded by the Big Lottery and Sport England, and when you're doing the exercises, it's important that you don't push yourself too far, and by taking part, you agree to 10 Today's terms and conditions. You can read these terms and conditions at tnflink.uk forward slash 10T, and the 10T is the digit 1, the digit 0, and the letter T. And please remember that you agree to take part at your own risk. Today's exercises are brought to you by Julian, and here he is. Hello everyone, welcome to 10 Today, broadcast number 8. This is a short 10-minute physical activity routine which will get you moving and stretching. It's great for your health, including improving your balance and building up your strength. Just take it at your own pace, there are plenty of options. If an exercise feels too much, just take it easy and have a break. All the exercises can be done either standing up or sitting down, so just do whatever feels good for you today. We want you all to do this exercise safely. You are responsible for monitoring how you are feeling throughout the session. If you feel any discomfort or pain, for example if you feel unwell or dizzy or experience palpitations, then please stop and seek medical advice. If remaining seated, at least to begin with, it would be ideal if you can use a hard chair so you can sit upright. It could be a dining chair, preferably without arms which can get in the way of some exercises, and have your feet flat on the floor. OK, if you're stood up, just step your feet hip width apart, relax your shoulders and stand up nice and tall and take a couple of deep breaths. If you're sitting down, place both feet firmly on the floor Keep your back straight, relax your shoulders and take a couple of deep breaths in and out, in and out. So, first up we have lift and lower. And remember, all the movements can be achieved whether you're sitting or standing. Raise both your arms straight up together with your palms up. Now raise up on your toes, then lower your toes back down bringing your arms down at the same time. Then bend over gently without straining your back and with your arms and legs straight if standing or feet flat on the floor with your knees bent if sitting. Swing your arms from side to side twice and come back to stand or sit up straight and take a breath. Now we're going to repeat that routine. So raise both arms straight up together with palms up Raise up on your toes, then lower your toes back down 
bringing your arms down at the same time. Then lean over gently, keeping legs and arms straight if standing, and feet flat on the floor and knees bent if sitting, and swing both arms from left to right twice, and return to standing position. So keep going, lifting up and down, then bending over and swinging. Great work everyone. This is a nice one just to get all those muscles nice and warm. Next up is straight out. So for this one, if you're standing, you might want to make sure you're near a chair for balance. And whether you're sitting or standing, please do not raise legs higher than hip level. Keeping your left leg soft, bend your right leg and lift your knee level to hip height. Now gently stretch out your right leg as straight as you can without straining. Then bend knee again and return your foot to the start position. Now do the same on the other side, bending your left leg and lifting your knee level to hip height. Now stretch out your left leg as straight as you can without straining and then bend your knee again and return to the start position. Keep doing this on alternate legs, lifting knee up to hip height, stretching leg out and returning to the start position. This is a great one for working out those legs. The next one is called crunch for core. Bend your right arm and bring your right elbow towards your left knee, lifting the knee to reach your elbow. You should feel a nice crunch in your core, then release back down. If you're sitting and find it harder to lift the knee, bend your back and lean into it. Or if that's uncomfortable, then you can tap your knee with your hand instead. Now do the same on the other side. So bend your left arm and bring your left elbow towards your right knee or tap your hand on your knee and release. Whichever variation you're doing, you should feel that crunch in your core. Keep going on alternate sides. Just a few more now. This is great workout for your tummy. We should all be feeling nice and warm now. The next one is called out and over. If you're standing, I recommend you're near something that you can hold on to for balance, like a chair. So raise your right leg out straight in front of you. Then keep your leg straight and move it gently to the right side until you feel that nice stretch in the top of your leg. Then move it back to the center and back down. Repeat this on the same leg. So raise your right leg out straight in front of you. Then keep your leg straight and gently move it to the right side, feeling that nice stretch. Then move your leg back to the center and back down. So raise straight out to the side, back straight and back down. And again, do that a couple more times. This is really good for your hips, tummy and thighs. Now we're going to do the same on your left leg. So you raise your left leg out straight and gently move it to the left side until you feel that nice stretch in the top of your leg. Then move it back to the center and back down, remembering to keep that leg straight. So up, to the side, back straight and back down. 
couple more times on this side now. Great work, everyone. Next up is full circle. Stand up nice and tall and keep your back straight. Raise both arms straight up above your head and then sweep them round together to the right, making one big circle all the way back up to the top. And keep going, swinging one big circle to the right. Just a couple more on this direction. Now lower your hands, relax your shoulders and take a breath. Good work. Now we're going to do exactly the same, but in the opposite direction. So keep making those nice big circles. It's a great workout for your shoulders, this one. Now we have push up to moon. So keep your legs nice and soft. And if you're sitting, keep your feet nice and firmly on the ground. Bend your arms, so both hands are at chest height. Then push both your hands together up in the air on your right, like you're pushing up to the moon. Then sweep your hands back down front of your tummy and to the left, pushing both your hands up to the air again on your left. And now keep going, so you're just making a nice big U with your hands, pushing up to the moon on either side. Just a couple more now. Really nice movement, this one. Next up is slowly does it. These are slightly different if you're sitting or standing. So if you're standing, keep your back straight, bend at your knees slightly to your halfway point and hold. And then bend your knees all the way down to your lowest point and hold. And then straighten up your legs again. Remember to keep your feet facing forward and try not to let your knees move in front of your toes. So you're just moving halfway, holding, moving down to your lowest point, holding, and then coming back up. Keep going. If you're sitting, just straighten out your right leg right in front of you and hold briefly, feeling that nice stretch down your leg. Then return your foot to the floor and repeat on the other side. Whichever variation you're doing, you're working your legs. If you're standing, you're also working your bottom. Okay. So keep going, always remembering to keep your back straight. So for those standing, bending knees down to your halfway point and hold. Then down to your lowest point and hold and then up. And sitting, raising your alternate legs and holding briefly. Good job everyone. Next up is swing back. If you're standing, keep your legs straight if you're sitting, keep your feet flat on the floor, bend your arms so both hands are at chest height, then straighten out your right arm and gently swing it back so you feel a nice rotation in your back. Looking towards your right hand, just take it as far as you feel comfortable. Then return to the center and straighten out your left arm and gently swing it back, looking towards your left hand and repeat feet and hips facing forward. You're just moving side to side, swinging your arms back nice and gently, feeling your back rotate as you move side to side. Just a couple more now. This is a great one for trunk rotation. Our last exercise today is strike of the cobra, a wee bit of martial arts. So if you're standing or sitting, keep your back straight 
maintain a strong stance and clench your fists at chest height, like you're a boxer. Then with your right hand, punch arm straight out and return, and then punch upwards towards the left-hand corner of the ceiling, so your arm crosses over your body and return. Now do the same with your left hand, so punching straight forward, then punching upwards across the body towards the right, and keep going. Really think about how your muscles are responding here, making the punches slow and controlled. Just a couple more now. Good job. Now we really should all be feeling warm. If you're a little out of breath, that's a good thing. It means you've been working. If you're not a little out of breath, can you work a little harder next time? Anyway, nearly finished. We'll just finish off with a nice stretch and cool down. So we're going to start with a hamstring stretch. So step forward with your right foot, placing your foot out in front of you with your foot flat on the floor. Then bend your left leg and put your hands on your hips and just lean forward gently. Whether you're sitting or standing, you should feel a nice stretch down the back of your leg. Hold for 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, and 1. Then return to a standing up position and swap your legs. So this time, step forward with your left foot, placing your foot out in front of you with your foot flat on the floor. Then bend your right leg and just lean forward gently. Again, feeling that nice, long stretch. Hold for 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, and 1. And the final stretch, hugging a tree. Just hold your arms out in front of you, just like you are hugging a tree directly in front of you. And your arms form a nice circle in front of you. And then cup your hands, putting one hand in front of the other, push your hands together, feeling that nice stretch across your shoulders and arms. Hold for 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, and 1. Now sit up or stand up and return to that nice relaxed posture we had at the beginning. Brilliant. So that was all the exercises and we hope you enjoyed them. Just to finish off, shake it out. Just shake those arms and hands and then legs and feet. Great work, everyone. Doing 10 today just three times a week can have great health benefits. It's fun. You'll simply feel better. So do keep going. Thank you for listening. TNF Soundings. Jade Ward. Killer Parents' Rights Petition Up for Award. A petition to change the law over prisoners' parental rights set up by friends and family of a murdered flincher mum has been nominated for an award. The family of Jade Ward and a family friend Edwin Duggan began the petition on the Parliament website. Jade was brutally murdered at her home in Shotton by her ex-partner Russell Marsh in 2021. Marsh was jailed for a minimum of 25 years for her murder, but he assumed guardianship of the 27-year-old's children while in prison 
and continued to contact the family asking for photographs and school reports. Jade's family, alongside Edwin Duggan, then campaigned to change the law and suspend the rights of killer parents who, under current laws, need to be consulted on decisions affecting their children, such as health, education and travel. The petition received 130,000 signatures and was debated in Parliament. Last year, the UK Government announced it would introduce Jade's Law by amending the Victims and Prisoners Bill. The new legislation will introduce an automatic suspension of parental responsibility while any mother or father is term serving time for killing the person with whom they shared that role. The Petitions Committee, a cross-party group of MPs, nominated three campaigns for the Petitioner of the Year Award. Russell and Louise Watson on their peaceful life in Cheshire. Classical singer Russell Watson glimpsed his now wife Louise across a crowded room and felt an immediate spark. As he was occupied accepting requests for selfies, he introduced himself to Louise in the time-honoured fashion of sending a friend over. That was 15 years ago and love is still very much in the air for the classical singer. He says, we met not long after my recovery. I'd been quite poorly after being treated for a brain tumour in 2006 and again the following year, and wasn't for socialising. A group of friends coaxed him out and they went for dinner and then to Panacea in Aldley Edge. He saw Louise and sent one of his friends over for a number. Russell says, I'm not exaggerating. There was a queue of people asking for a selfie. Louise says, lots of gorgeous ladies, but I wasn't bothered. I did know who he was but wasn't interested in joining the queue. It was an instant connection that ran much deeper than just initial attraction, Russell adds. Initial attraction doesn't see you through 15 years. There were sceptics at the start of our relationship, but here we are. Louise is not just my wife, she's my best friend, and we run the business together. She's a huge support mechanism to me in my career and managing our home. We're not just husband and wife, we're a team. We've got something a lot of people want, a good marriage, a good relationship and a mutual respect. It's a lovely partnership and we're very lucky, Louise smiles. Russell says it's a joint effort, we work very hard, Louise runs the farm, she runs the business and she travels with me. It's always a real mix of jobs, one minute I'm mucking out, the next minute I'm up on stage in front of 10,000 people. The Watsons live on a small farm near Congleton. A home, they say, is filled with love and animals, many, many animals. We were searching for seven years for this house, Russell says. We were looking around Cheshire and we wanted to stay local to where my daughters are in Wilmslow, where we'd been living for some years. We'd seen places where the house was amazing, but where there was not enough land, or there was enough land, but the house didn't suit. Then fortune came our way. Louise's farrier, Julian Welsh, told us a farm had come up for sale near Congleton. It was beautiful and that we should go to see it. We got in the car and I was thinking, here we go again, and drove up the lane towards the farm. And it felt, whilst not exactly built up, still not exactly rural. And then we climbed a hill and it felt as if we were taking off from an airport. The view suddenly rose up in front of us. 
We could see right across the cloud at Bosley. I turned to Louise and said, I don't care if it's a tent, I want to live here. We weren't even bothered about the state of the house, Louise adds. We would have built a house, but then the house ticked every box too. We love everything about the house, Russell says. The way it's put together, the reclaimed oak beams, the fact that it's all stone. Even the surveyor who came said it was unique for the time it was built in the 1950s. With part of the property dating back to the early 20th century. And he said he's never seen anything like it. Ensuring they actually got to live in the house they'd fallen in love with wasn't easy, however. We had quite a battle to get it. We were up against someone else and it was backwards and forwards and we did reach a point where we said, that's it, no more. And literally that same day the agent called. It was a huge relief, Louise says. We were both crying and we really wanted to live here. We were on pins till we got the keys, which took six months. I still walk out the back door, look around and think I can't believe I'm here. It's so beautiful out there, us lads. The farm has given Louise the opportunity to immerse herself in her love of animals, a passion Russell fully supports, as well as Louise's two horses and pony, Obi, Elvis and Rara. They provide a happy home for chickens, all of whom have names, alpacas, all named, and rescued Saluki Poppy, Axel the rescued greyhound, and Muffin a Shih Tzu. Then there's Figaro the cat, a rear named Fuzzy and Rico, the parrot. There's also a box filled with chicks in the living room, who will also no doubt all be named before they join their cousins outside. You'd think with all this going on and Russell's busy life performing, they just want to close the curtains, hunker down and shut out the world when they're both home. Yet Louise has openly opened a livery business and there's also a tiny guest cottage she's created from one of the buildings near the main house, The Cloud. I just want to share the joy of this place, Louise says. All our guests love it here. The last guest from Spain booked for three nights and stayed for a full week and wrote us a card when she left saying heaven is a place on earth, which is exactly how we feel. Russell Watson is the UK's best-selling classical artist. He grew up in Salford and from a young age had a voice people wanted to hear. He went on to sing in local clubs whilst working as a bolt cutter. In 1990, he won the Piccadilly Radio Search for a Star contest. And this was the start of his long, slow drive to stardom, which finally hit the accelerator in 1999 when he was asked to sing at Old Trafford before the last match of the Premiership season. After the game, when United won the league championship, he returned to sing the Freddie Mercury and Monstrati Caballella song, Barcelona. A week later, he was invited to sing at the final of the UEFA Champions League in Barcelona between United and Bayern Munich duetting with Montserrat Caballet. Russell released his debut album, The Voice, in 2001. It went to number one in both the UK and US classical charts, the first time a British artist had achieved this. He's released 13 more albums, selling more than 7 million albums worldwide. He has four classical Brit awards, has duetted with some of the world's biggest stars, and has sung for royalty multiple times. Ryan Bowman secretly filmed women and children. A man who secretly filmed women and children for his own sexual gratification has been jailed. Ryan Bowman, 
has been sentenced after committing a string of 21 sexual offences between 2013 and 2019 involving 17 different victims. This includes nine counts relating to indecent images of children, eight counts of voyeurism and four counts of what is commonly referred to as upskirting. For this, the 38-year-old was imprisoned for three years, of which he will have to serve just half before being released on licence. The sentencing at Chester Crown Court began with Michael Whitty prosecuting, detailing the circumstances of all 21 charges on a crammed indictment. Bowman's offending first came to police attention in June 2021, when he was arrested at his place of work, a car dealership in Mould. A search of his then address in Deeside resulted in police seizing several hard drives, laptops and a mobile phone holding hundreds of images and videos. The first seven counts on the indictment concerned the taking of indecent images of children. One instance saw Bowman film children as they showered and another involved him filming a naked child in the midst of being potty trained. Another occasion saw him film up the skirt of a five-year-old child at Chester Raft Race in 2017, and he also filmed the children of people with whom he had worked as a mechanic or volunteered with at a community organisation in Mould. Counts eight and nine on the indictment concerned the possession of indecent images of children, one category B image and 552 category C images. The next eight charges all relate to voyeurism. <clears throat> using hidden cameras, Bowman filmed several women changing and using the toilet at his former home. The remaining charges relate to upskirting and involved one instance where he filmed a woman who had called him to repair a vehicle and another at a wedding. Beaumont, who had no previous convictions, pleaded guilty to all 21 offences at Chester Crown Court. The majority of Beaumont's victims only found out about what had happened when they were told by police during the investigation. At the sentencing hearing, four of them read out statements. One victim, the mother of children he had filmed, and someone whose wedding he had attended, said, It feels that everywhere we turn, there is a reminder of Ryan and the friendship we had, a reminder of the betrayal. To find what Ryan was doing has sickened me. Another mother of children he had filmed added, When police came to my home, I was screaming. It was the type of scream you expect to hear in a horror film. You never expect an officer to show you a photo of your own daughter. I was blindsided. One of the victims of voyeurism was on maternity leave when she found out and later left her job at Cheshire Police due to the anxiety it caused her. I have regular nightmares, she said. I am anxious when going into town or using any toilet that isn't my own. I look for where cameras may be hidden. It's absolutely disgusting. One of the upskirting victims was someone who had known Beaumont for a long time. She said, these actions have made me feel vulnerable and trapped. I hope you regret what you have done for the rest of your life. After today, I never want anything to do with you again. Defending, Max Safman read out a statement prepared by Bowman. 
he said. I would like to say I'm sorry to everyone I have hurt. I cannot apologise enough. No one is more disappointed in myself than me. Alongside the prison sentence, Judge Simon Berkson issued a restraining order and a sexual harm prevention order, banning Bowman from owning a phone with a camera and from ever working with children. He said what a grotesque breach of trust this behaviour demonstrates. Nobody in the room could not be caused to be upset by what they have heard. In fact, when I looked around the room, there was not one person who wasn't upset. No person should blame themselves for what has happened to their children. Air Ambulance was deployed after an incident closes Cheshire Road both ways. An air ambulance was deployed to a road traffic collision on a major Cheshire Road between a HGV and a 4x4 vehicle. The incident was reported to emergency teams at 3.44pm on Monday, February the 26th at Renbury Road, Chumley, with Cheshire Fire and Rescue Service reporting the incident happened at the junction with the A49. One fire engine from Malpas, one from Nantwich and the major rescue unit based at Winsford were deployed from the fire service, with a helimed also sent to the scene. One casualty was trapped in the 4x4 and needed extricating by firefighters. Once the crews were able to gain access to the casualty, paramedics were able to give treatment. Police closed the road in both directions whilst the incident was being attended to. The publication Positive News includes good news items each week. Here are three from last week. English hospitals to adopt Martha's Rule. Seriously ill patients in England will be entitled to an emergency second opinion if their condition worsens, the National Health Service announced this week. From April, a hundred hospitals will be offered government funding to implement Martha's Rule, named after Martha Mills, a 13-year-old who died of sepsis because her symptoms were missed. The scheme will eventually be rolled out nationally. Martha's mother told BBC Radio 4's Today programme that she expected the new system would save lives and mean her daughter had not died in vain. Four-day week here to stay for UK firms. Most of the firms that participated in the world's largest four-day week trial are operating a shorter working week one year on, a new report shows. In all, 61 organisations took part in the UK trial. Of those, 54 are still operating the policy, 89%, and 31 have made the change permanent. When asked about the effects of a shorter working week, 82% of surveyed companies reported positive impacts on staff well-being, with half recording reduced staff turnover. Critics of the four-day week have questioned whether the positive impacts reported in four-day week trials can be sustained long-term. Juliet Shaw, Professor of Sociology at Boston College, which led the UK trial, said that the new research suggests they can be. Overall results have held, and in some cases 
have even continued to improve, she said. Physical and mental health and work-life balance are significantly better than at six months. Burnout and life satisfaction improvements held steady. Job satisfaction and sleep problems nudged down a bit, but the bulk of the original improvement remains. An iconic UK species showed signs of recovery. Their numbers have been dwindling for decades, but this week came further signs that hedgehogs might be staging an urban comeback in the UK. A survey, a survey by Gardener's World magazine reported that sightings of the prickly creatures were up 2% last year compared to 2022. The magazine's editor, Kevin Smith, said the increase is a positive indication that we're making progress in coexisting with nature. While the survey provides only a snapshot of hedgehog populations, it chimes with the findings of a 2022 report on the state of the species. It found that in rural areas, hedgehogs continue to decline, while populations in urban areas are stabilising and even growing, highlighting the importance of gardens and green spaces. TNF Soundings Features from across the UK And now I have your crossword answers for you. One across, that separate part of a household for Muslim women is a harem. The yellow fruit gives us lemon. Along the bottom, to go in provides us with enter. Now the downwards, one down on the left hand side, divide into is half. Two down through the middle, send money in payment gives us remit. And on the right hand side, three down, type of musical scale is minor. Did you manage all of those? Well done. TNS Soundings. Police step up patrols following ASB incidents. Police in Flintshire have stepped up patrols following reports of antisocial behaviour. The force has confirmed they've received several calls, calls regarding incidents of ASB and criminal damage and off-road bikes. Appeals have been put out on North Wales Police's Community Alerts page following the recent incidents. The first involves criminal damage and ASB at the Marva Newydd Nursing Home in Greenfield. Police say the property is in the process of being boarded up with patrols to be stepped up in the area. The force has also stated they are aware of ongoing issues regarding groups of youths using off-road bikes and causing problems. Work is being done with partner agencies to resolve the issues with the most recent incident taking place near the Mice Pennant area of Mostyn, Police have warned that robust action will be taken for those responsible. Anyone with information has been urged by police to contact 101 or to contact PCSO Matt Griffiths 
on 07989 158 371. That's contact 101 or contact PCSO Matt Griffiths on 07989 a Wirral man has been found dead in his boat whilst taking part in his latest fundraising challenge. Michael Holt, 54, of Heswell, was rowing 3,000 miles across the Atlantic from Spain's Gran Canaria to Barbados. Michael set off on January the 25th, 2024, from Gran Canaria in his boat True Blue. The voyage was expected to take 55 days, ending in Port St Charles in Barbados. Writing on his Just Giving page, Michael, who was originally from Porth Madog, North Wales, said, I will be rowing for over 16 hours a day and will survive on under four hours of sleep per day. The voyage could take from 50 to 110 days to complete. I'll be 54 when I begin the voyage, and by then I'll have been training for over two years. Michael, who had type 1 diabetes, was raising money for Liverpool Charity and Voluntary Services, LCVS, which works to support Liverpool's voluntary communities. Michael was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes in 1997 and in 2015 was involved in a self-inflicted incident which resulted in double reconstructed shoulder surgery. This was because of major low blood sugar hypoglycemia attack, a hypo. It's understood that Michael became ill last week and was making his way to Cape Verde when communications with the 54-year-old stopped. On the Sunday evening, his brother David posted on Facebook. He said, We've been working tirelessly to get help to Michael over the last four days, but have found it incredibly difficult to do so. Last night, the fishing vessel Neurogo accepted a tasking from Cape Verde Joint Rescue Coordination Centre and made directly for Michael's coordinates. Very sadly, upon arrival, Michael was found dead inside his cabin. Of course, this was not the ultimate conclusion we were looking for, but I'm somewhat comforted knowing he died doing something he absolutely wanted to do, with a passion, and managed to row in excess of 700 miles in the process. An achievement in itself. There's a huge shock to myself, his wife Lynn and daughter Scarlett, and my parents, not to mention wider family and friends. According to Michael's GoFundMe page, he'd raised over £3,000 for LCVS. Three thousand people descended on the Welsh Parliament in protest at a proposed overhaul of farming subsidies they say threatened their industry. Protesters who had travelled from across the country to attend the event cheered, waved Welsh flags and held placards in Welsh and English reading, no farmers, no food. They are objecting to proposals by the Welsh Labour government who require more land to be set aside for environmental schemes. A series of protests have already taken place across Wales but the event in Cardiff Bay on Wednesday was the largest by far, attending by thousands of farmers. South Wales Police had previously asked those attending not to bring tractors 
in a line of vehicles were parked along the road leading to Cardiff Bay. The events saw speeches from farmers, Senate politicians from the Welsh Conservatives, like Cymru, as well as from former international rugby union referee Nigel Owens. He told the cheering crowds, In 2015, I was very privileged to referee the World Cup final at Twickenham, the proudest moment of my career. But today, I'm even prouder to come and speak in front of good, decent people. An honour to be here to speak and to support you today as a fellow farmer. Mr Owens said he had dreamed of becoming a farmer since he was eight years old and now had a small freeholding. I do it because I care, because I'm passionate about the industry that we are in. Mr Owens said, but without farmers, there is no food. There can be no Six Nations game in Cardiff next Saturday against France if there is no referee. There can be no food on the table if there are no farmers. Protest has placed Wellington boots in adult and child sizes in front of the speakers. Mr Owens said, In decades' time to come, we want to see people in those Wellingtons and not empty ones. The protesters are objecting to the sustainable farming scheme, which is currently under consultation and will require 10% of a farmer's land to be covered in trees in exchange for future funding. Farming leaders say the scheme could result in 5,500 job losses. The Welsh Government insists it is listening to farmers' concerns, and changes can be made. Aaron Humphreys, a fifth-generation farmer from Mid-Wales, said, I've got a two-year-old son sitting at home who loves every minute of being on the farm, and I'm fighting for his future on that farm. I'm also here to make sure as farmers stick together and unite through this time of hardship, regardless of who we are, where we come from, what we found, or what we believe in. Now is the time to stick together. He added, farmers are the heart and soul of our local communities, and I for one am fed up of being treated like the villain. Where do the people thinking up these schemes think their food is going to come from when the farms are ravaged by TB and we're busy pruning trees? Those demonstrating have seen the support of the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. We saw a gathering outside the Welsh Conservative Conference last week that we've got your back. Andrew R.T. Davis, leader of the Welsh Conservatives, thanked the farmers for demonstrating, saying they were sending a message to the Welsh Parliament. He said, we, what we must continue to do and be allowed to do is produce that food to protect our environment. Ruin up Eorweth, leader of Plaid Cymru, said there is no Wales without rural Wales. We cannot have a vibrant rural Wales without its governments here in Cardiff and in Westminster being willing champions for it and backing it at every turn. From the food on our tables to our living communities and to our rural environments, and the health of biodiversity in rural wells. It is agriculture that binds all of this together. A Welsh Government spokesperson said, farming is very important to Wales and our economy, and we want a successful future for Welsh farming. We've had a seven-year conversation with farmers to design future farming support, and we are committed to continue to work with farmers to develop a sustainable farming scheme. This is a genuine consultation and no decisions will be taken on any element of the proposal, including how we achieve the requirement for habitat and trees until we have conducted a full analysis of the consultation responses.
We've been clear we expect changes to be made following the consultation and we will continue to listen. The First Minister and Rural Affairs Minister provided an update yesterday on a number of key areas to support the sector. Superintendent Ezra Jones said South Wales Police respects the right to peaceful protest and following discussion with the organisers, we were able to ensure that the protest took place safely, lawfully, with minimum disruption to the wider public. Bringing tractors and other agricultural vehicles into a busy city environment poses a risk to the safety of other road users and potentially restricts the movement of emergency services. However, working with the protest organisers and Cardiff Council, the suitable holding area was identified, meaning little disruption or delay on routes around Cardiff Bay and across the wider South Wales road network. Tree Speaker for Broughton District History Group A history group is branching out with their latest guest speaker. Tree hunter Rob McBride will speak at the Broughton District History Group on Monday, March the 11th. Rob has appeared with several television and media personalities, including presenters of the popular BBC programme Countryfile. He is a passionate campaigner for the ancient trees of the UK and Europe, and he has travelled widely across several countries. When visiting Broughton, the subject of his talk will be the Great Trees of Offers Dyke. He will take the group on a 13-year adventure track through the incredible border country between Wales and England, a project not just trees, but much more. Everyone is welcome to attend meetings, which are held on the second Monday of every month at the Memorial Centre, Brinteg, Broughton, between 10am and noon. Talks later this year including, include Wrexham's Year of Wonder on April the 8th and the Ladies of Llangollen on May the 13th. For more details, visit broughton-history.co.uk. Chester City Church to get permanent repairs after £93,000 grant. St Peter's Church on Watergate Street by Chester Cross was closed for over a month in February 2023 after one of its church walls was judged to be in a potentially dangerous structural condition and was potentially months away from collapsing. Following temporary works carried out to the church, a section at the bottom of Northgate Street, which had been previously cordoned off for pedestrian safety, was reopened. As was the church itself in March, albeit with temporary stabilisation in place, via internal tension straps. This was after an outward bulge of up to 15 centimetres was found on the east wall in May 2022. Planning permission has since been sought and successfully obtained for permanent repairs to the Grade 1 listed building, which would involve two new mattress plates on the east wall. Now repairs are expected to take place after the church was successful in winning £93,080 of funding as part of the UK Shared Prosperity Fund community in place, which is a central pillar of the UK government's levelling up agenda and provides funding for local projects to improve pride in place and increase life chances across the UK. Other projects, as well as the historic church, 
are to improve accessibility. Several other Chester projects have been successful in obtaining thousands of pounds of funding for the 2024-2025 period. The biggest single grant was £122,506, which will go to the refurbishment of Latch Community Centre to increase usage and services to residents. An extensive community consultation took place between June and September 2023 and forms part of the Latch Action Plan. Chester City Centre's Eastgate Row will get improvements on both sides of the street. A total of £118,988 will be spent on working with property owners to improve disabled access on Eastgate Row South, while £73,485 will be spent undertaking a heritage-led refurbishment of public realm areas of Eastgate Row North. Live Cheshire will receive £49,621 to go towards a feasibility study for an independently charity delivering full inclusive and accessible clubs and social activities for disabled people in the former New Scene Centre to maximise the potential of the building. Cheshire West and Chester Council receive £38,560 grant to develop a costed and clear plan of how to enhance the city walls and towers as a visitor attraction and destination. Chester Zoo are to receive £30,861 for a project titled Networks of Nature Wildlife Champions to galvanise and support social action to improve local neighbourhoods and green spaces, especially in deprived neighbourhoods. Chester Cathedral will be granted £27,000 for a project titled Reflections, a series of exhibitions celebrating the work of 20th century stained glass artist, Tarina Cox. The PDSA has issued a reminder about the cat chipping countdown. They say act meow or face fines. Attention cat lovers, a significant feline-friendly legislation is approaching for the estimated 11 million pet cats in the UK. Starting on the 10th of June 2024, all cat owners in England must ensure that their furry companions are microchipped. This means there's less than six months to comply. This measure is aimed at making it easier for lost or stray pet cats to be reunited with their owners and returned home. If your four-legged friend is found without a microchip after the 10th of June, you have a grace period of 21 days to have one implanted or risk a fine of up to £500. Despite the impending deadline, the 2023 PDSA Animal Wellbeing Report reveals that 67% of cat owners are unaware of this legislation, which is why they're helping to promote awareness at the PDSA. Microchipping is a one-time expense offering a lifetime of security. PDSA vet Lynn James recommends microchipping before a cat ventures outdoors, but it's important that your cat is microchipped even if they're an indoor cat, offering an added safety net in case of escape. The process involves a tiny identification device the size of a grain of rice 
linking pets to their owners through a unique number that scanners at vets and rescue centres can read. While microchips lack GPS for tracking a cat's location, they still serve as a vital tool to get pets back to their owner. The best time to have your cat microchipped is when they are neutered, but don't worry if you've missed that chance. Get in touch with your vet and they'll be able to advise you. Register your contact details with your microchip database company. Providing your contact details means you will be notified if your cat goes missing. Now you're clued up, you can keep your cat safe. TNF Soundings Features from across the UK Hello, this is Amanda. I have a friend who lives in Los Angeles called Doc Farnsworth. He used to work as a copywriter in the advertising industry and now in his retirement he writes short stories. This story I particularly like, but as he is American, it feels like it should be read with an American accent. And although accents are not my forte particularly, I'm going to give it a go. So hopefully it won't be too embarrassing. Uh, So this uh, story is called The Wall by Doc Farnsworth. For as long as anyone in the family can remember, the wall has always been there. And the Smythe family has been here for four generations. A good 100 yards back of the sun porch, down in a little hollow nestled amongst the ancient chestnut forest, the wall is as much a fixture in our lives as the rising and setting of the sun and the changing of the seasons. The wall holds many secrets. As far as anyone can tell, it follows no property lines that have ever existed, and in this part of New England where property records extended back for well over 200 years, that is saying something. The wall is strangely incomplete, forming a right angle that from its apex doesn't extend more than eight feet in either direction, with the ends declining down, so that when you stand in the bottom of the hollow and face the corner, it has the appearance of a pyramid. The bottom five feet of unmortared fieldstone is so finely joined that it reminds one of the stonework of the Incas, with the top three feet of intricately laid brickwork in a herringbone pattern having all the earmarks of a master mason, which is only substantiated by the three remaining square granite capstones that remain countersunk into the top course of bricks. The three structural elements of the wall shouldn't work together, but somehow they do. No one knows how far it extended in either direction, for no one has ever found one of its three brothers, but this remnant is imposingly impressive. At some point in time, the capstones had been intricately engraved, but the years in the harsh New England winters have smoothed out the sharp carvings to blur both its message and design. As children, we would scale the wall to its corner to try and decipher its meaning despite the dire warnings from our parents of the wall's imminent collapse. We laughed, knowing that their parents and their parents' parents had warned each succeeding generation of exactly the same fate. Who had built it? What had it protected? Obviously a person of great means had built it to surround some structure of great import. But never a single foundation stone of that structure has ever been found, and of the remaining portions of the wall there is not a trace. No loose stones or bricks have ever been found in the surrounding forest floor. 
It was as if the remainder of the wall had somehow sunk below the leaf-littered ground, leaving only this one corner above the surface like the bow of a sinking ship, or the last vestige of a mystical kingdom. Or at least that was how it appeared to us as kids. And such fantasies obviously coloured our interpretation of the blurred markings on the capstones. Could that have been a date? 1407 obviously could not be correct, as this certainly wasn't a vestige of the indigenous Seneca people. And despite the fact that multiple generations had coined this as the captain's corner, based upon what appeared to be the letters C-A-P-T, capped, etched into one of the stones, it was just as likely they weren't letters at all, but part of an intricate design, the dreams of a pirate's buried treasure that had been drawn from the weathered granite into impressionable young minds. There is no doubt that the captain's corner holds power over all who see it. It has impressed us to such an extent that it stands unblemished by the hand of man. The surrounding chestnuts all bear the signs of human presence. Extending out from five feet over fifty feet from the wall, there seems to be signs of a human need to mark this spot in the forest, if not the wall itself. Some faded slashes of what appeared to be early Indian trailblazes, alongside carvings of long-lost loves from a hundred years ago, intermingle with bright swirls of day-glow spray paint, which I am ashamed to admit my little brother Billy, who is two years younger, and I had some hand in doing. But in the center of all this human chaos, the wall stands inviolate. Such is the power of the wall that even as children we would not dare attempt to mark it. It was just a dare that no one would dare speak. For even the chestnuts themselves dare not encroach upon what is left of the wall. Limbs and roots mysteriously stop, uncut, within that magical five-foot boundary. But such is the mysterious drawer of the wall that we couldn't stay away, and it wasn't that you couldn't approach the wall or even touch it. Indeed, it was one of the greatest joys of our childhood to rest our hands upon the warm fieldstone rocks and feel the hairs on our arms rise up, and no journey to adulthood was ever complete for the children of the area without spending at least one night in the embracing arms of the corner. And though we never spoke of it amongst ourselves then, we would be amazed to find that those nights were strangely similar. The campfire was always built at the apex of the corner, though it left no trace upon the stones from its flame and smoke. If two of us were to spend the night, each would lay their sleeping bag along one side of the wall, with our heads towards the fire. If more, each would lay their bag like spokes of a wheel, each facing towards the fire and the corner of the wall. Nothing was ever said about these arrangements, and now that I think about it, it was very much like the prohibition of leaving any marks upon the wall. It was just somehow understood. And what magical nights they were. Gazing up at the sparkling sky, it seemed like shooting stars were common. Full moons and every night occurrence and even the aurora borealis seemed to shine well into the spring and fall. We would tell each other tall tales of pirates' treasure and our hopes and dreams for the future, until the fire was but a pile of glowing embers. 
I haven't made a pilgrimage to the captain's corner for decades now. Come to think of it, I don't know an adult who has. We leave that journey for our grandchildren and great-grandchildren. I sit on the sun porch with my little brother Millie, basking in the past and the warming glow of the afternoon sun, and try my damnedest not to warn the kids about climbing there. For I've had a full life, some would say a very full life, as I have just celebrated my 92nd birthday. It has been a life filled with love and laughter, and a life that, there isn't any doubt in my mind, has been enriched by the presence of the wall, of the unexplained, of the mysterious. Boys, it's time for dinner. We'll be right with you, Mom, Billy answered as he rose from his rocker, looking over towards me. But I was already heading in a different direction. And as my eyes grow heavy and a smile spreads across my face, a soft velvet black box seems to enfold me from every side as I feel the wall envelop me in its arms. One last time. TNF Soundings. That is all that we have time for on this week's recording. We hope that you found some of the articles we've put together for you to be of interest and we look forward to reading for you again next week. So on behalf of everyone who's recorded tonight, I would like to wish you well and say goodbye. <laughs>